ready? Rearing to go. <clears throat> we are in Leviticus. You're correct. Yes. Chapter 24 this week. We are closing in <clears throat> the end of the book that we've been studying all year. We'll be finished before Christmas. We'll be finished before it's pumpkin spice latte season. All right? We're, that's true. We're in 24. So Leviticus, the book, there's different ways people have kind of laid it out and structured it. But one of the interesting ways that uh, has been proposed for how Leviticus is set up is in three sections. So you have chapters 1 through 9, then you have this little brief uh, narrative, then you have chapters 11 through 23, or 24, and then you have this little tiny brief narrative, and then you have 25 through the end of the book. And it's been proposed that the three structures roughly correspond theologically to the three sections of the tabernacle. And so the outer courtyard where the sacrifices take place, and then the inner court, which is uh, the inside the tabernacle, which is kind of the heart of Israel, and, and the holiness code and everything, and then the Holy of Holies, the very center of it, <clears throat> which would then be the nature of God and His desires for His people and everything. There's arguments to and for, to and for and against breaking the book up that way, but. Nonetheless, it does help explain this chapter that we're in, 24, because in the whole book of Leviticus, there are only two narratives. There are only two sections where anything like a story takes place. And both of them have to do with extreme acts of judgment, like swift judgment over seemingly insignificant things. And so it's kind of a, these are... To the two narratives in Leviticus are odd and they're they're jarring after spending a whole book reading through sacrificial legislation and ethical conduct legislation, uh, cultural practices, all of that kind of stuff to have these two narratives just kind of stuck there. And some scholars even just throw up their hands and say this is just evidence that this book was compiled together over centuries by multiple authors and these are out of place and they used to be different uh, accounts and this and that and they just give up trying to make theological sense of why the author puts the incidents where he does <clears throat> but regardless of why they're there uh, they do teach some important concepts and they're used in Leviticus to springboard into some important legislation and we'll come to that at the second half of this chapter but the first part picks up pretty much where the last three chapters left off um, excuse me, the last chapter, chapter 23, left off. 23 was about Israel's calendar. We spent three weeks looking at it. It was about how Israel's year was divided in half, and you had the spring holidays, harvest festival, and sacrifices, and then you had the ones in the fall, and what those taught Israel about not just the agricultural year, but also their story, their theology, how their entire identity was based around celebrating these seasonal events. So then right on the heels of that, it makes sense that 24 starts the way it does. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before.
before the Lord from evening till morning, continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. And that lampstand is the menorah that sits right in front of the Holy of Holies. So you have the inner Holy of Holies where the ark is, and then there's a curtain that separates it. And then right outside of that curtain, on one side you have this table, on the other side you have this tree. And the tree is made of gold and its branches bud into lamps and there's seven of them and it's the menorah it's the lampstand and then across from it is the gold table and we'll see what's on that in a minute so the ordinance that god gives after commanding all of the harvest festivals this is at the end of the year now all of or following along thematically all of the harvest has been brought in all of the produce the fruits of the land the olive harvest has been brought in so it makes sense then that he would say and now here's what you're going to do here's part of what you're going to do with the best of that olive produce. You're gonna use the clear pressed olive oil. There's different ways to make olive oil, but the way that's being described here is is a is how you make high quality, a clear olive oil, pressed in a in a mortar rather than a, a mill type thing or a wine press. So <clears throat> the the goal or the command that he gives uh, Aaron and the Israelites is this is what's gonna happen continually from morning till evening, part of the priest's job is going to be to keep this light, or from evening to morning, to keep this light burning. This light that's right inside the tabernacle. This light is not to go out. This is a continual lighting, uh, a, con- a continual reminder <clears throat> throughout all of the generations. Then next he says, verse 5, Take fine flour and bake 12 loaves of bread, using two-tenths of an ephah for each loaf. That's a lot, by the way. These are big loaves, like the size of this serving tray, perhaps. I mean, that's a lot. Um, Set them in two piles or rows. It's probably piles is the more accurate term, or stacks instead of rows. Six in each uh, row on the table of pure gold before the Lord. Along each row, put some pure incense as a memorial portion to to represent the bread and to be an offering made to the Lord by fire. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons, who are to eat it in a holy place, because it is a most holy part of their regular share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. So, you have God's house being tended by God's butlers, so to speak. That's what the priests were. They're setting out the light, they're lighting the lamps, which you would do in a tent. Remember, this is a tent, there's no windows. So light comes from the lamp. You set out the, you, you light the lamps, and then you set out the meal, the bread with a bit of incense in terms of the, to help with the fragrance. And this is symbolic of God's covenant meal with his people. God, his continuing presence. The, the, the master of the house is always home. His lamp is always on. What, what was the hotel we'll leave the light on for you? What was that, like Motel 6? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like what's going on. You know, God leaves the light on for you. Like, like he's always there. He's always in their midst. <clears throat> and there's, his table is always set. There's bread on his table. And that represents the tribes of Israel in his presence. But it also represents his provision for them. Remember, these harvest holidays have happened and they've brought in the harvest. And so now with the flour, with the wheat that they've harvested, they're able to make this fine bread 
in a, in a huge amount. I mean, it's not a little amount. This feeds the Levitical priests. This is their meal weekly. So these big piles of bread right inside God's tabernacle. And the image that you get is God providing for his people constantly, continually. Now, in the ancient world, this would have made a lot more sense as well because in Babylonian temples um, and in Egyptian temples and in other ancient Near East temples, it was customary that you put food and particularly bread in front of the idol. Bread was seen as the food of the gods. And unlike in Israel, in Israel, it's the food of Aaron and his sons. It's the food of the priests. But in the other ancient Near East cultures, it was the food of the gods. The gods actually needed humanity to feed them. If you read the ancient Near East accounts, um, of particularly from Babylon, but some of the Hittite and some of the other uh, Sumerian, ancient, not Sumerian, but the, the other peoples of the region, that's part of what the gods need humanity for, is the gods do God stuff and heavenly stuff and handle the big stuff, but humans have to feed them have to get their food. They're, they're literally like workers. And so you would, in the temple of your God, you'd go and you'd put a little meal, you'd put a little portion. But it was seen as that was the food for the God. Human, the humans wouldn't eat that. The priests wouldn't eat that. And even today around the world in different temples of different faiths, people pour. Uh, in India, they offer milk to the different uh, idols inside the Hindu temples. Uh, and sometimes you'll get accounts of Miracles happening where an idol will drink the milk or drink the wine or consume the food of some something like that. It's kind of like how you, you know, sometimes people say Jesus appeared in a burnt toast or something. It's, it's kind of like that thing. Like they say, oh my gosh, this idol's drinking the milk. And that's, you know, people flock to it and the temple becomes more famous, yada, yada, yada. Most of the time it's just some rigged up contraption. But regardless, in Israel, the difference was that the food was not for God. It was God providing the meal for His people and symbolically through the priesthood. So there's a lot of symbolism in this and there's a countercultural symbolism to what happens inside Israel's temple versus what happens inside the temple of their neighbor's gods. So there's a little bit of a polemic. There's a little bit of a distancing this God, but in a way that makes somewhat makes sense to the people. You know, putting bread before the, the image of your God is a known practice, but doing it as your God providing the bread for you is takes it and flips it on its head. So scripture does that with a lot of things. There's a lot of cultural elements that the Bible will take and will refashion and repurpose and give a new meaning to for God's people. We saw it back in Genesis with circumcision. He did that. Um, We've seen it with some of the, the ways that the holidays were celebrated and some of the ways the sacrifices were performed. And there's all kinds of things where God enters into the culture and he takes aspects of the culture, but he puts his spin on it. He puts, it's almost like he says, yeah, this is what you guys have been groping at blindly. Let me show you the real thing. Let me show you the reality behind what you're sensing but not getting right. Let me show you the, the, the concrete of what your religions are only shadows of to use C.S. Lewis's phrase. So um, God does this with this meal in his presence in the heart of this thing called the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle is a little portable Mount Sinai. It's a Mount Sinai that follows the people wherever they go. Actually, it's a Mount Sinai that the people follow wherever it goes. And so on Mount Sinai, when God came down and made the covenant back in Exodus chapter 19, 
what did he do? He made the covenant with the people and the elders of Israel had a meal on Mount Sinai. You can go back and read it. Exodus 19, Exodus 20. They had a meal. It says they saw the God and they ate and they drank. So here again, this is another throwback to Exodus. Another nod to this idea that the tabernacle is indeed Mount Sinai portable. So the concentric areas of the tabernacle represent the going up the mountain towards God. So just outside of God's presence, just outside of the glory cloud where Moses was allowed to go, just outside of that up on the mountain, the elders of Israel saw God and they ate and they drank together in a covenant meal setting. This is what's uh, being symbolized here with this little meal. Now let's get to the narrative because this is a jarring twist. It's like out of left field. God's explaining all these holidays in the past chapter. He's explaining this ritual in this chapter. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, verse 10. Now, the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name, the name of God, with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri the Danite. Those names, by the way, the, the Hebrew of those names, there may be some wordplay in it because they all have to do with, with judgment and, and restitution. And, and uh, won't get into it, but there's a reason that they mention those names. And they, it's not just, oh, and this is who this guy was. Like The names have, uh, the names lead you to expect that something involving judgment and retribution is about to take place. That's what doesn't come out in English. I don't know of a way to bring it out either. Um, so, give the name. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. So, guy, he's part of, remember, when Israel came out of Egypt, they weren't alone. A bunch of Egyptians came out with them. The mixed multitude. So, Israel was in many ways a multi-ethnic society in part at this point. And so the text says that one of that mixed multitude, mother was Israelite, the father was Egyptian, went out into or went among or, or, or was dealing with an Israelite or the Israelites, got into a fight. We don't have any details. We don't get what happened. We don't know who hurt who. We don't know who started it. We don't know what. But in the course of this fight, it says that this half Israelite, half Egyptian, blasphemed the name of the Lord with a curse. Now, we've seen in both Exodus and in Leviticus how cursing is not cussing. Okay? So you don't read that as he cussed. No, that's a southern term for just saying bad words. It's not saying bad words. Cursing was speaking into being a punishment over someone. Cursing was a verbal assault. In the ancient world, a curse was seen, whether whether for right or wrong, it was seen as having power of life and death, as being effective. We we'll see it in the next book of the Bible. When Israel's wandering the wilderness and a king wants to attack them, he wants to subdue them, he's scared of them. He hires a prophet to come and do what? Curse them. Four times Balaam tries and, and, and says, I can't, I can't curse them. There's power in curses in the world of Israel. So it's not just like he got in a fight and he said, ah, you, you know, and launched into a tirade of profanity. It's not like that. It says during this fight, he cursed, he blasphemed the name of the Lord. 
Yahweh itself. So he, something of the effect of, you know, well, this God of yours, Yahweh, he can just go to heaven, you know, something like that, or, or you know, may, may God be cursed and blah, 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 and, you know, we don't know the content of it. And in fact, the rabbis were reticent to even write the phrase curse and God, Yahweh. And so they didn't even say that. They, if you look at it, it says cursed the name. In other words, even writing curse and the word Yahweh in one sentence was something that the rabbis didn't want to do, that the, 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 the scribes, the people compiling it, were reluctant to do. So it was a very serious thing, and it was one of the Ten Commandments. You know, what was the, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh in emptiness, is what the Ten Commandment was. So how much more should you not specifically curse the name of God. So this was not, again, the only reason I'm harping on this is because when you read this, especially just by itself, you just get the sense of a guy got mad and he swore at somebody. And that's not what's going on. He, this, this half Egyptian, half Israelite, openly, wantonly, with an upraised, upraised hand, cursed the God of Israel. Now, this is not like this happening today. This is not like this happened 50 years after. This is the group that came out of Egypt. This is another thing to keep in mind. This person, this man who hurled an insult, and the the, the phrasing has almost that connotation of hurling an insult at God. He was one of the ones who walked through the parted sea. He was one of the ones who watched the firstborn in Egypt die. He was one of the ones who saw all the waters turn to blood. This man has been there eating the bread that God provides in the wilderness every day under the glowing pillar of fire by day and or pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. So this is not there's no parallel to a later time where somebody just flippantly using the name of okay, this this is right there when all of this is happening. They have not even been camped out for a year yet at Mount Sinai when this is taking place. He's seen Moses go up into the cloud on Sinai. He's heard the thundering voice of God giving the Ten Commandments. Remember in Exodus, if you were here for it, the Ten Commandments were verbally spoken by God to all the people. It wasn't like God said, write these down, and then Moses brought them the tablets. They all heard the voice of God. So there's, there's, there's no excuse. There's no greater act of, and, and blasphemy is a great word for it. Blasphemy. There's no greater act of blasphemy than what this man has done. And there's no more critical moment in Israel's history when he probably, when, he, when there'd be no excuse to ever do that than this point right now. So it's not just a little flippant, oh, he misspoke and now God's going to be mean and angry. If you, if you ignore the context of the book, if you ignore the context of Leviticus, if you ignore everything that's happened in Exodus, then of course you can read that and go, why is God so mad? So what? The guy cursed. That's not what's happening. If you read it in the context, what's happening is God is basically standing there as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. The tabernacle is fully functioning He is with His people in their midst. And one of those people in that midst openly curses Him. You can't 
you can't do anything that's more brazenly breaking the covenant than that. Like it's, it's, the, it's the most definitive way of saying, I don't give a damn about this God. Literally. Than that. So I'm, try, I, I'm wanting you to see the import because this verse gets pulled out of context a lot. People would go, oh, this is just an example of mean old God in the Old Testament. Alright? There's times where, you know, if your kid says something, mouths off or whatever, it's one thing. But if your kid looks you in the eye and says, I don't care what you're telling me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Then, you know, that's different. That's a whole different ballgame than if he's not paying attention or something's done in anger or something's done in haste or whatever. So there's an element to this that's deeper than just this heat of the moment kind of thing. And so Israel, they know... They know that it's a violation of the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments. They know, excuse me, they know he's misused the name of God. But that Ten Commandments, if you read back in Exodus, didn't give a punishment for it. It didn't say what should be had. It just said, you shall not do this. So they hold him. And they go and uh, hold him in custody until the will of God should be made clear to them. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of Yahweh must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether an alien or a native born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. So God is saying, this is, this, was a commu- this is an act of treason against the community, against me, against this theocracy that God has. And it's done in the heart of, of where God is. So here's what's happening. This man, by doing this openly, brazenly, has forfeited his life. And now, in this narrative, as opposed to the previous narrative, in the previous narrative with Nadab and Abihu, fire came out and consumed them. God directly put them to death. They were the priests. They were the high priests in line to be high priests. And God put them to death. Now in this one, God's saying, no, this is going to be a community thing. This is going to be, as a community, there's going to be a purging. And you're, and you're not going to tolerate certain things in your midst. And this is one of them. So the community takes him outside the camp. Why? Because death defiles the camp. We've already seen that. Death, anything having to do with death, corpses, anything. Take him outside the camp. Why are they going to stone him? Well, some interpreters have said the phrasing or the, 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 the way it's put in Hebrew is he hurled insults against God. He hurled blasphemies against God. So then because of the punishment fitting the crime, literal stones will be hurled at him. And so there's kind of a balance there. And, and whether, you know, there's, there's some merit to that. The other reason, some have said, is because stoning was the means by which you could avoid touching a corpse. You, you wouldn't become ritually impure. If you killed someone by stoning, uh, it would also not just kill them, but it would bury them. It would be, you know, you would stone them and then heap rocks onto their grave, and then that would serve as a marker for the rest of the community. The whole point of stoning as a penalty was, or not the whole point, but one of the things was it was to be a preventative thing. It was to be a visual thing. It was to be a witness. It was to be, everybody sees this. Everybody knows this penalty. 
And so that's what it was uh, enacted for. Again, just like with Nadab and Abihu and fire coming out because they offered unauthorized sacrifice on the altar, it seems so harsh to us. You know, it seems because God doesn't give capital punishment for very many things in the Old Testament. You know, there's only like five or six things that require the death penalty in Israel. And it would also seem to go against what we read in the New Testament about Jesus, you know, saying, turn the other cheek. And, and if somebody insults you, you know, love them in return. So it, it, it's a tension there that we're like, wait, God, what's going on? This is, this is an extreme response. But it should be emphasized the moment and the place where this is happening. The time, the point in time in Israel's history. And remember a few weeks ago we said in Leviticus, Israel is in boot camp. Israel is being prepared to be the holy nation that will lead all of the other nations back towards knowledge of God if they obey the covenant. So if the nation itself tolerates flippancy with the name of God or looseness with his reputation, then how will they ever communicate that to the nations? How will they ever communicate the, the fear of the Lord if they themselves as a community don't even fear the Lord? So it's very stringent. And the analogy for boot camp we talked about, you go to boot camp, you, you get punished severely for seemingly small things. You didn't shine your shoes. You didn't make your bed. Your collar is crooked, whatever. But it's not because of those things. It's because of what they're trying to instill in you in terms of discipline and in terms of rank and in terms of authority and all that stuff that the military can't exist without. So there's an element, it's not a perfect parallel, but there is an element to that in how God treats his people. And he is stricter with those to whom he's given more. And remember, this is the generation that came out of Egypt. This is not a later generation. These are the ones who saw the fire on the mountain. These are the ones who saw the corpses littered throughout Egypt. And these are the ones who walked through an ocean that had been parted for them. Greater revelation, greater responsibility. Greater guilt when you spurn that God who's done all of that. And, and also in every other culture in the ancient Near East, if you, if you uh, curse the name of the king, you would be put to death. It wasn't even a get. I mean, it wasn't even an argument there. You curse the Babylonian king, you put to death. You curse the Egyptian pharaoh, you put to death. So, how much more so than the God of all creation in terms of that cultural setting? So again, there's distance, and it makes it weird because we don't live in that culture and we haven't seen those things and we haven't experienced God in this way. But the underlying premise of what's going on, he states it in the end. We'll end with this. He says he he gives the legislation that follows from this. And this is a chiasm, by the way. It starts with a thing, it moves to another thing, and then it moves back to that thing and that thing we've talked about before, but the pattern of this section. If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he's done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. And then moving back out, whoever kills an animal must make restitution. And then the final, but whoever kills a man must be put to death. You are to have the same law for the alien, for the immigrant, and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the Israelites. They took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. So God, in this incident, uses it to reiterate the principle that he's already reiterated in Exodus. 
It's called the Lex Talionis, or the Law of Retaliation. And it's the whole eye for eye thing. God uses this again, and that's what, that's part of why interpreters think that the, the story set up the way it is, is because the man hurled these blasphemies at God, and so then the punishment was him having literal stones hurled at him. Again, maybe, maybe not. But uh, the, the principle that's set up is, in Israel, the punishment will match the crime. The punishment will match the crime. That's what eye for eye means. Eye for eye does not mean... You hurt me, I kill your family. That was ancient Near East justice. You insult me, I destroy your house or I wipe you out. You injure me, I kill your firstborn son. Right? That was vengeance. Eye for eye is not vengeance. Eye for eye, Lex Talionis, is put in place to limit vengeance. If someone knocks out your tooth, you can't kill them. You can't chop off their arm. You can't know. Someone knocks out your tooth. The most you can do is knock out their tooth. And the, the, the way this was applied in Israel and through the writings of the rabbis makes clear that this was not a literal application. They would use monetary compensation. You, not get a, you, you get a, you know, something happens in a farming accident and you can't walk anymore. Le- technically, you would have the right to maim the other person. But that, nobody would do that. They would make money, monetary restitution for that. And that would serve in its place. But there was a limit. And that's the point. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth was meant to put a limit on what could be done justice-wise. Not to say, you know, whatever you want, get revenge. That's what Jesus was speaking against. When Jesus said, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say love your enemy as yourself. He was talking to people who were using Lex Talionis as an excuse for being able to get revenge on people that they didn't like or people that had wronged them. When in reality, this is a legal precedent that the courts of Israel, the judges, were to use to determine what is a fair punishment for this crime. And the only crime that could not be compensated for with money was taking of human life. In Israel, taking of human life intentionally, not unintentionally, but intentionally taking a human life, what we call murder, which is different than killing, commandment is not thou shalt not kill it's thou shalt not murder murder was seen as you automatically forfeit your own life and no monetary compensation can be made so you wouldn't have rich kids getting off and and poor kids getting the death penalty in israel it was wherever you are whether you're native born whether you're an immigrant whatever one law and it's this eye for eye two for two life for life so that's what god uses in this situation uh in this weird little narrative to end this section of Leviticus and then move into the next section. But we're out of time. We're one minute over. Sorry. Have a great week. Get out of here. Grab some seconds if you want to come back next week and we're going to move into the final sections. Huh? Yes. Yes. We will be meeting next week. So if you go out for Labor Day, come back on Tuesday. All right. We're done.